Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Gar- Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies Blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone in podcast land. Yes, it is here. Charles Marshall live from Southern California. In for Neil, and as a reminder, Neil and I typically rotate the show with uh, him handling it one week, and then I handle it the following. We don't always stick to that uh, particular approach. That's typically how we handle it. Now, it is uh, July 9th, 2020, the COVID crisis, the COVID nonsense or as I unaffectionately call it, the COVID crap sometimes. It does continue apace, and we will be talking about an interesting aspect of that. We will be doing an update as well. A part of that update is connected to the massive defaults that are literally in play right now. And I will be addressing... Uh, that whole situation, and there is a principle called force majeure that listeners, I believe, are typically familiar with. Uh, Essentially, this principle, the fundamental of it is that where you have a contract between two parties and where there are conditions which can't really put into the contract to guarantee performance. In other words, externalities, third-party situations, in this case, the kind that would show up in a force majeure are are things like, for instance, uh, they could even be unanticipated weather events. Uh, They could be something completely outside the control of either contracting party. Again, the principle is, let's say you're a builder and you have subcontracted to have various plumbers and welders and uh, lumber people come in and construct certain parts of the home. If there's a weather event or some other externality that's completely Typically, these are, these are the kinds of things that can be considered uh, freaks of nature or just outside of, of planning even, not, not just out of control of either party. Then that, that event written into the contract, the contingency of the possibility of that event, what that means legally is if the event occurs, neither party will be held for either payment or performance, depending on what would otherwise be required in the circumstances. 
And I will be going into that in some detail later on the show, how that applies to the COVID crap, as I unaffectionately call it. Uh, We will address first the whole situation of reverse mortgages, like the COVID nonsense. Reverse mortgages are becoming, I I don't know that you would say it's a permanent feature of uh, of regular mortgages and regular mortgage life. It's still kind of on the periphery. They certainly have been around for decades. And yes, there are many out there if you add them all up. It is still um, the case that there are relatively modest numbers of reverse mortgages compared to regular mortgages. Nevertheless, with you know, the aging population we have in California, Florida, much of the Sun Belt. It is becoming a trend. Reverse mortgages are becoming a trend. And one of the backstops to try to protect borrowers, and uh, listeners will not be surprised to know this, uh, that backstop is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and they have taken up a number of reverse mortgage issues over the years. So there are various ruling and, rulings and promulgations from them. Regarding reverse mortgages, our purpose on today's show is to discuss how the, uh, the reverse mortgage environments in the reverse mortgage market, if the underlying loan of a particular reverse mortgage comes from a crazy quilt securitization, fraudulent loan, fraudulent chain of title, fraudulent referenced assignments, then that reverse mortgage is subject to being nullified, subject to challenge, subject to a lawsuit to attack the standing and the status and legitimacy of those collecting on the loan. Now, where there is a reverse mortgage, one of the legal issues is a kind of ratification argument that the other side will will make. And it's the sort of argument we see often with loan mods. So where somebody, let's say, completes a loan mod and then maybe they turn around six months or two years later and sue over the the origination of the the note, whether it happened for refinance or whether it happened as an origination. And let's say that borrower challenges the assignments, claims they're fraudulent because of securitization issues. Now, a later loan mod, some courts, some judges will treat that act of the borrower, uh, the act of taking out the loan mod and ratifying the loan mod by making payments. They'll take that act as vitiating and in some cases even canceling out the argument that the same borrower would make in challenging documents later. I have seen something similar to that with reverse mortgages. 
because it does take some time and documentation and effort to get a reverse mortgage. Uh, the qualifications for that generally are a little complex. Uh, the fundamental of how the reverse mortgage works is essentially you can only take one out where there is a major amount of equity. I can't give you like a ballpark percentage. This is not my uh, arena, so to speak. I don't do reverse mortgages. I do challenge them sometimes as an attorney. As far as the financial workup reverse, reverse mortgages, that's beyond the can of this show. The general principle is that there needs to be equity in those mortgages. And if the equity is significant, then potentially the owner of the home for which the mortgage is laying, so to speak, then that owner can, just as they could potentially borrow and refinance based on the equity, they can also potentially take that reverse mortgage if the equity is, again, has to be, you know, very substantial because a reverse mortgage typically will be for a period of years. Uh, again, I'm not, I'm not an expert in, in what those periods of years would be. I think the time periods are quite variable uh, as compared with, let's say, a 15- or 30-year mortgage. The bottom line with the reverse mortgage is the borrower is, the borrower is not making payments during the reverse mortgage period. So if hypothetically that period is five or ten years, the borrower makes no payments. Makes a month now. They do have to keep up homeowners insurance, and they do have to keep up if there are any condo association fees. But the loan itself attendant to a mortgage, those types of payments, no, those those are not those are not put on the homeowner during the reverse mortgage period. So the attraction to a borrower of a reverse mortgage is that particularly upon and after retirement or as one gets elderly or typically both, there's a period of years still left in life. They don't want to continue to make mortgage payments and they have significant equity in the property, then can make sense for them to take out a reverse mortgage. It nullifies the need to make mortgage payments. The problem, of course, is that a lot of these are misrepresented in the origination of the reverse mortgage itself, the loan, the way they're marketed, the way the closings are handled. Uh, you get a lot of the same hurry up and wait and then hurry up and hurry types of demands at signing and whatnot that you see in refinance situations where the borrower has to wait around sometimes sometimes for weeks or months for their for, for them, him or her, to see movement in the refinance of their loan, or in this case, a reverse mortgage. And then all of a sudden, they're expected to just show up and sign documents, or there's going to be uh, 
someone from the escrow company in their living room, you know, two hours after they've been waiting around for two months or two weeks. I think a lot of listeners know these scenarios. A lot of listeners have done uh, several refinances in some cases and reverse mortgage origination works. And I think it's in a similar institutional fashion. So the critical aspect for the purposes of this show about a reverse mortgage is, is if you have a reverse mortgage, you at some point would typically have done a refinance or an origination of the loan that then ended up with all this equity that you then look at that equity and there's certain things you can do. One of the things you can do is do a reverse mortgage. I would be the last person to recommend them per se. Nevertheless, despite the cautionaries of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, I would also be the last person to say per se that they're an illegitimate vehicle. I would say that as a possible vehicle, it has a potentially legitimate role. However, there's so many caveats that, again, that would be beyond the scope of this show. What's within the scope of the show is to say that a reverse mortgage could easily have the same securitized origination and securitized assignment problems as any other securitized mortgage loan. And just like any particular loan is not necessarily securitized, though many are, particularly those originated or refied after the early 2000s, even into today, 2020, though the sweet spot for when we saw most of those types of loans was the early mid 2000s up to about 2013, 2012. Nevertheless, uh, anyone who's in a reverse mortgage can take a look at their loan documents or have a forensic loan auditor, uh, such as Bill Padilla. They can have any number of uh, individuals who specialize in analyzing these types of documents. They can have their loan or refi documents analyzed to see if there is a securitization problem, to see if there is a securitized break in the chain of assignment. And those breaks, those problems, those and some, sometimes one could, uh, legally or otherwise, though, this, this show, again, I'm not giving legal advice and I'm not making a legal declaration. I'm just saying that hypothetically one could look at certain securitized loans and say that in certain circumstances there's fraud involved uh, any number of ways. So the way that would play out in this type of reverse mortgage situation, again, Analytically, there's, there's nothing different in the securitized analysis. The underlying loan is or is not going to be a securitized problem loan. And the reverse mortgage aspect comes much later, typically, than either the refi or the origination. So I do suggest that those with reverse mortgages, they, they do look into their loans. 
they may have the same securitized problems that one would typically see depending on the, the year the loan was originated or refund. And I am handling the case now. I want to discuss details uh, because it is an active litigation. Sometimes these cases, just because they're an active litigation, doesn't mean I can't or won't discuss them. On this show, the variables for that are somewhat complicated. This particular one I won't be going into. However, this is a a case that has survived a number of uh, rounds of demur and has various causes of action at various stages of those amend complaints going to trial. So this case is going to trial. Absent either a motion for judgment on the pleadings or a motion for summary judgment at some point, which could potentially prevent it from going to trial. But as of now, there are a number of causes of actions going to trial against various defendants. Now, the COVID crap. Uh, it is highly concerning that this seems to be built into the entire social, political, and economic fabric of American life now. Not just American life, major swaths of the entire world, Europe, Asia, Latin America, Africa, all over. Nevertheless, it is, we could call it at this point, a semi-permanent part of the American landscape it certainly doesn't appear that the institutional architecture that's built up around this COVID crap is going to be dismantled anytime in the near future. And yet it has very real consequences. Uh, I'm sure listeners are become familiar and I'm sure there are some who unfortunately have had personal experience with unemployment, job disruption, career ruining, business ruining, and the band-aids that the government has put together, you know, the three trillion here and the two trillion here and the that's not band-aid money. It's 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 money that's all going to the same banksters and uh big financial institutions that the bailout money during the securitization crisis went to back in two thousand nine. So, yes, we have trillions out the door going to a lot of big players, but even the modest amounts that, for instance, are directed to small businesses, which I think at one point there was a $300 billion distribution and some similar amount, uh, phase two, that will be a phase three. One would certainly think so, but I don't, again, have the uh, crystal ball on all this. I do know that the amounts that were even targeted to go to regular people, regular businesses, were relatively modest compared to the trillions going to the big institutional players. And even for those distributed uh, to ameliorate the unemployment, let's say in the retail industry, let's say in the restaurant industry, those types of loans we're often going to, again, large institutional organizations, <laughs> which didn't even qualify for the terms of the loan. So 
this type of thing is going on in government all the time. I think a lot of listeners are clued into that already. Uh, but what do we do about it? And what do we do about one implication of, of COVID-19, which is there are a lot of people going into default as we speak. They've got home mortgages. They've got business rent. They can't pay one or they can't pay either because their gross receivables or their income as an employee has evaporated. And they either briefly went back into the employment chain or the business running chain and were able to restart their financial life, let's say back in May or June. And now with what we are in now as Americans, you can almost call it a second lockdown phase where a lot of these same businesses are being shuttered again. A lot of the same principles of the stay at home orders are back in place. And now we have masks on top of everything else. So it's really uh, an onerous situation for a lot of individuals all over the country. And there is an absolute legal aspect to this to be addressed. And Neil, I believe, will be talking about this at greater length in a coming show. And what is that? It's, it's the way that force majeure concept of it that I was talking earlier in this show today about that concept is implicated by this whole default situation. Now, it's one thing if somebody was way behind and already in default on their mortgage. Let's say they were three months in default, six months in default. Back when the COVID crap fell on everybody's head in mid-March, 2020. Now, okay, if that person had been in default, let's say since January or, you know, going back months or years before that, then what we're talking about really doesn't apply. So for a lot of our listeners, I think the utility of what I'm discussing will be limited. On the other hand, there are a number of listeners here uh, who Maybe they were struggling to make their mortgage payments. Maybe they've been struggling for a number of years or months. And the employment situation overnight has destroyed their financial life. We know there are millions of people out there like that now. That's why we have the record unemployment, the record unemployment claims. I mean, the numbers percentage-wise are aligned with the Great Depression. They're not just like, so up there with the Great Depression, there are numbers here nationwide in most areas where we're talking 25, 30% unemployment. You don't see those a lot as official numbers, but the real number, which can be garnered any number of ways, for one, you analyze the number of employed people over various time periods as a percentage of the population. And that way you can do apples to apples comparisons with other periods. You use that kind of analysis, and then you do show that there's a 25 to 30% unemployment rate, which is absolutely in line with the Great Depression rate. So that means we've got massive defaults coming and in the borrower mortgage market and the, the payment market, the mortgage rate the borrowers are making. So force majeure applied to them would be to say, look, if you were current – 
in March 2020 on your mortgage. And let's say you've been current for some time and you really hadn't had a default problem or if you had a default problem that was months or years previous, I think the force majeure policy would apply to you because it's absolutely even more. I mean, it's one thing to say, well, I, I as a builder don't want force majeure to bail you out a uh, contractor, you know, subcontractor. And the subcontractor could say the same thing about the builder. Let's say in Florida. I mean, is a hurricane a really a force majeure uh, aspect? It could be. It could be in a contract in Florida. And I believe some Florida contracts do have that type of thing. Nevertheless, one can argue from either side that a hurricane is not necessarily an appropriate force majeure element because where hurricanes occur or where earthquakes occur commonly, it should be anticipated as part of the contract. Maybe there's another way of handling it rather than assigning uh, some default in the case of a hurricane, which is why it would still be a force majeure um, trigger under a lot of analyses. Um, Back to our situation here, the reason force majeure is such a compelling Okay, argument. The argument for applying force majeure to COVID stuff is this was unanticipated by virtually anyone and even the main institutional people all over the country and, frankly, all over the world and the World Health Organization leading all of this was essentially misstating for weeks and even months prior to the meltdown of mid-March when the stay-at-home orders just took hold instantaneously within days, apparently. The same politicians who brought all this on the heads of their constituents weeks or months later, but certainly weeks and sometimes days, were saying, oh, it's no big deal, don't don't do anything differently, still travel, uh, still go to large parties and open areas, et cetera, et cetera. So if you are in a default situation now and you're coming into uh, what you personally know you will not be able to support payments on because it doesn't look like your ability to earn a living is going to come back anytime soon, then this description is for you. The force majeure aspect here, it's a potentially litigable issue. And it would be a novel legal theory to apply to mortgage loans. Uh, Nevertheless, you know, because insurance aspects, this is the other thing, insurance aspects will cover a hurricane typically or a tornado. And, yes, the insurance in those areas, Tornado Alley and somewhere in Alabama, those – those insurance payments will be higher, but it can still be built into the payment stream that a given borrower is making on their own. The COVID stuff could not be built into anybody's insurance. The COVID stuff could not be built into anybody's payment stream. So it will be, you know, whether the coronavirus, which is called the novel coronavirus, is truly novel, that's another. That is certainly beyond the can of the show. Nevertheless, what I will say is 
what would be novel and is novel is the COVID crash and what it's done to the economy and what it's done to retail and what it's done to small businesses and what it's done to mortgage holders. So that mortgage borrowers, I should say. Uh, and, and so the way that will play out in the coming weeks and months is there are going to be a lot of defaults. There are going to be forced And the force majeure policy is something that arguably should be invoked by borrowers to say that they shouldn't have to pay during this time period. What does that look like? Well, that's a complicated issue. It needs to be unpacked more. Neil will be doing it on his show. I will be doing it on IOS as well. We will revisit this issue. And so Neil will be back next week, and I will be back after that time. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.